It's not how good you are, how how holy you are, how sanctified you are. It's it's that you're justified. Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world. But now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. It is my honor and my pleasure always uh, to bring on a couple of guests. Uh, One is Shannon Poe, who's our creative director here at Tactical Faith. And also for the third time, uh, Neil Shinby. Uh, and Shannon's going to introduce him, but me and Neil, of course, a, about a month ago, uh, did a podcast kind of TF musings on race relations. Uh, and that ended up being one of the most popular things that we've ever done. And Shannon, after listening to it and talking over to Neil said he would like to do just like a pure interview, uh, with, with Neil, uh, about his testimony, about his life. Uh, we are now at a point in time where we are seeing, uh, Neil all over the internet on social media, uh, in videos. And, and, uh, he is a person that is, is becoming very well known, um, and a loud voice when it comes to certain issues. Uh, but we were interested really at the heart of the matter of, uh, of his story, uh, who he is and how did he came to Christ. And Neil, thank you so much for coming back on again. Yeah, my pleasure, Matt. Hey, I'm going to give it off to you, Shannon. You you tell us why you wanted to do this, what wh- why you were interested in doing this, and uh, a little bit about Neil again. Okay, yeah. So the main reason why I wanted to do this, the first interview that we did with you, Neil, was a few few months back, and I was uh, asking you questions about critical race theory and kind of getting a, a basic understanding of 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 what a lot of those those kind of ideas were where they were in popular culture where they were coming from and you know all all of that all of those kind of things and in the midst of that um interview you had said that you had gotten gotten saved a little later in life in college and so um i also got saved uh, at a small liberal arts school um montevallo university while i was in while i was in college in my undergrad and and uh, I don't know, it just something about wanting to hear other people's testimonies and how Jesus has touched people's lives and how God has kind of changed you. And knowing that, um, knowing a little bit about your background, I just wanted to hear that story a little bit. Now on your website, it's, uh, it's your bio is, is pretty, pretty short, doesn't go into a lot of details, um, but it says that you grew up in Delaware um, you attended Princeton and you studied high dimensional functional function, high dimensional function approximation, which I don't even know what that means. Maybe we can get into that in a second. Um, but while you were studying at UC Berkeley, you, uh, you were studying theoretical chemistry, right? And yeah. that is essentially where you got, where you became a Christian. Yes. At right? Berkeley. Yeah. And then you went on to do a PhD dissertation on quantum computation and you worked postdoctorally at Yale 
And you worked at Duke for a little while until 2015, where you eventually left that position to start your own school in your mm-hmm. home, right? Homeschooling your your children, right? There's also yeah. you also had a, a little bit of a of a of a health health scare that looks like God has brought you through that pretty pretty well, huh? Yeah, so far so good. I had a, yeah. I had a brain tumor removed about ten years ago. Yeah. So, uh, so, okay. So I know, I think, I, I think I remember your father is Indian and your yeah. mother is American, right? Yeah. And so what kind of growing up in Delaware, I can imagine that, that, uh, you probably grew up in a fairly liberally minded home or maybe, I mean, what, what, what was it like growing up for you? That's, that's kind of where I want to start where, where, where you grew up. And then what, what, what happened at, at Berkeley that, that kind of opened your eyes up to Jesus? Because you seem like you're very much committed to um, the evangelical kind of Christian Christianity that at least I'm familiar with, you know, which I, I resonate with this, this kind of Christianity that is first and foremost about preaching to the lost and um, wanting to also, as apologists, we want to, portray the best and clearest message that we possibly think we can for Christ as well as give a proper defense of Christ. And so, um, so there, what, 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 what kind of a home did you grow up in, in, uh, when you were in Delaware? So I have just wonderful parents. Uh, my mom is a foreign language teacher or kind of was, she's semi-retired. My dad was a, uh, organic chemist for years, uh, at, DuPont and later at AstraZeneca. And uh, I, but I had a fairly, fairly non-religious upbringing. My mother was raised Catholic, was not really practicing when I was growing up. My dad was raised Hindu, not really practicing um, growing up. And so I had a very little formal religious training or instruction. I remember that in fifth grade, I went on a sort of a religious kick where I said, I, I want to go to church. And so my mom took me to the near nearby Catholic church for a few weeks. And I read the Bible cover to cover to say that I had, you know, I kind of slogged my way through it for, I don't know how long it took me. I like revelation. I remember that I was like, Oh, this is exciting, you know, beasts and stuff. But yeah, but and they, a lot of it was just, I am reading the Psalms and thinking, Oh man, Praise the Lord again. Okay, praise the Lord again. It's kind of grinding it out to say, because I wanted to say, okay, I was very proud of being an intellectual even at age 12. And so I wanted to be able to say, I've read the Bible. But I remembered virtually nothing about it. <clears throat> and huh. I remember uh, when I was, uh, so I had a few interactions with what I would look back and say were evangelical Christians. So one of our neighbors invited us to a vacation Bible school at his church which again, in retrospect, was like a Southern Baptist church, probably evangelical. But I remember we made flowery lays and there's a Hawaiian theme. But even then, I, so I got very little out of it. But I remember one thing that one of the instructors said, and I was probably in third grade. But he said, you know, being a Christian means being one with Christ. And I thought, huh. I didn't know that's what it meant. I just had no idea. One with Christ. What does that even mean? And he uh, he also said that when he was a kid, 
he used to walk to school with his Bible and carry it around and people would make fun of him. I thought, man, yeah, no wonder they did. So, <laughs> I, so it wasn't like a very favorable thing. I just remember, but it stuck out. You know, I don't know how old I was. Again, I was probably eight years old or maybe 10. I don't remember. But the point is, it's amazing what stays with you even after all this time. And then in high school, I remember going to like the pharmacy near near my house. And after I got out of the store, I was accosted by a group of kids. Again, probably evangelical Christians, maybe Mormons. I'm not even sure. They didn't. They weren't wearing a tie or anything, so probably evangelicals. But they kind of gave me a little spiel about something religious, and I just remember being really uncomfortable and kind of sweating. And gave them, they, they gave their little talk, and I said, "Thank you. You gave, you gave me a lot to think about." And I just ran away. <laughs> so that was the extent of my religious exposure as a kid. So um, with with your father. You said you said he's he's Hindi, right? He, he was raised Hindu, yes. Yeah, and so did did uh, was it kind of a nominal thing for him? Did he take it very seriously? Um, no, not at all. My some of my relatives in India are more religious, but he we never went to Hindu. There was a Hindu temple, I think, when I was in high school in Wilmington. We never really went there. It was, and I think he was. Yeah. So he just, it would never play a big role in his life. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that wasn't necessarily a big influence on you then, right? No, no. And certainly not the worldview. And I think when I was in high school and then when I went to college, I kind of would have described myself, oh, I would have called myself a Christian because it was kind of the default. You're in America. You're not a Buddhist. You're not a Hindu. You're not Jewish. You're not Muslim. So you're a Christian. And I kind of got the sense that Jesus, you know, taught some good things. And I remember reading, you know, just sort of cultural books that, you know, like I remember reading Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, if you're familiar with that. And it's certainly not Christian at all, but it has, you know, Jesus sort of figures in that book somewhat kind of new agey. And I would say that when I got to college, so I am a professing to be a Christian, but would never have considered going to church. I think I may have read the Bible occasionally in college, probably not, but I would pray every night. But the God that I believed in was just kind of a God that I'd figured out. I had an idea Mm. of what God ought to be like. If I were God, I'd be like this. And so I'm sure the real God is like this. And so I'll pray to that kind of God. But I considered it to be very I was very spiritual. Like this is, we'll get into a little bit more of my story, but the real driving force behind my life up to that point was being better than other people. So I, you know, I went to Princeton. I'm pretty high achieving in terms of like academics. And I also was decent at sports. I never played on my high school teams even, but, uh, and I played piano. So I, I was kind of well-rounded and it, when I got to Princeton, of course, at Princeton, everyone is well-rounded and everyone is brilliant, pretty much. Hmm. So it's it's easy to say I'm you know very I'm the smartest kid in my high school. Say I'm not sure I was, but let's you could say that. But then when you get to Princeton and you're with everyone who is the smartest kid in their high school, well, now if you want to be the best, the absolute best person, you can't just rely on your academics. So if I was not as smart as someone I met at Princeton, then I could say yeah, but you know. I'm also musical. I can play piano. Uh, you know, I, I, so I have that. But what if they also play piano? Well, also I'm athletic. Like I'm pretty good at, you know, I, I can play sports. I, I play pickup basketball a lot. And we get, 
And what if they also are good at sports? Well, there's something I could find. I had to find something, something that was a factor that would make me better than they were uh, in terms of my in my own sight. And the interesting bit was that the trump card was religion because I was spiritual. Right. So even if they had all those things over me, I could say I'm a moral person. I have this deeper side to my life that they probably don't even have. Mm. And or, or or if they were, and then if they actually happen to be religious too, I could say, yeah, but they're just like formally religious. I just I have I know what God's really like. I'm an intellectual. I have yeah. these, my own belief. I'm a free thinker. I, I can see where being at Princeton though, that would kind of be a knock against you if you're if you're claiming any kind of dogmatism, right? Well, there was actually a pretty vibrant Christian evangelical community at Princeton. I wasn't a part of it, but I think there was. And also remember, all of this was only in my own mind. I didn't have to be objectively smarter or <laughs> more athletic, or it just had to be something that I could say in my own heart of hearts, not probably out loud or even consciously, but in my heart of hearts, I could say, yeah, they're not really all that. I, mm. I have this over them. Yeah. So you can always, but that so for me, that was really what drove my my everything, you know, my self-worth, my identity. And again, it wasn't pathological. It's not like I was, you know, in, I had, I didn't have, you know, serious problems. I was happy. I was well-adjusted. But when I thought about myself, it was always in terms of comparison. I wanted to be better than the person next to me. And, and, and actually, one of the, the funny things too, I remember that uh, I I was in an eating club and I was like the kitchen manager and so I did I helped clean the house and I you know worked in the kitchen and things, but I remember that one of the ways in which the, this shows this, this obsession with being better and to be being more moral than other people was so for example I didn't drink uh, until I turned twenty one at all and my friends all drank and that was weird that I didn't drink but I just wanted to show one of the reasons was. I just, I could do it. I could not drink under all that peer pressure under, I was just not going to drink. And then uh, I remember cleaning up our eating club one night as we're, you know, getting ready to go to bed and like vacuuming the floor. And I remember overhearing two of my friends talking about, man, look at, look at Shenvi. He's just so dedicated and such a good person. And I was just eating it up. You know, I, 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 I don't know if they knew I could hear them or not, but I didn't care because I was like, that's right. I am the best. <laughs> so it really was. And again, it's not like I sat there consciously thinking about how I can be better than other people. But when you really push down into the depths of my soul, you would find someone that was very self-absorbed, that really wanted to be, like I said, better than everyone at everything. Yeah. So that's sort of who I was uh, and before becoming a Christian. Um, anyway, so any, any more detail? Um, yeah, well, no, I, yeah, that would, that, that's a, that's a piece of the puzzle that, uh, I was, I was curious about as to whether or not you kind of went into school, uh, as, as an atheist, or if you were kind of just nominally Hindu or nominally Christian or whatever. So yeah, that, that's good. That's, uh, it's a little, little surprising, actually. I, I kind of thought that your, your, uh, your trajectory would be like, you know, I was a hardcore atheist, and then whenever, you know, I was all into science, and then, then something happened. But um, that's that's interesting. For myself, I, I, kind of similar. I grew up relatively nominally 
Christian in a Baptist church, uh, was baptized whenever I was young and grew up pretty consistently in a Christian church. So I had all of the, um, all of the right things, all of the right doctrines and stuff, but I, I went dramatically astray. Like you said, you didn't drink until you were 21. I didn't stop drinking until after I turned 21, whenever I got saved, like Jesus got a hold of me. I was reading the book of revelations and like, I don't know, God just got a hold of me. Um, so it, it just captivated me. So, um, so yeah, so here you are in Princeton, you're pretty self-righteous, uh, by your oh, own yeah, accounts. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah. but, but you're not, you're not opposed to these ideas. Like that's one thing that I can say for myself is that throughout, and I, I was hanging out with a lot of liberal people. I went, I, I went to a pretty liberal arts college, uh, very, it was a liberal arts college. And I had, I was very left of center. Um, but I was never opposed. I was never opposed to the idea of God in any way, form or fashion. As a matter of fact, I always kind of considered myself somewhat of a, you know, pretty much a Christian. Um, so, so you're, you're kind of walking this path. And, uh, when you get to Berkeley, there's, there's some kind of a, of a shift there, right. For you. And what, what is that? What is that shift? Well, it started a little bit earlier. So back up a little bit. I remember when I was a sophomore, I think, at Princeton, I was um, on my way to the dining hall, and there was a book table in front of the dining hall, and it was it was then back then it was Campus Crusade for Christ, mm. and they were handing out books, and I kind of look at them, and I remember I used to call Campus Crusade for Christ the C the KKK like the you know Campus Crusade for Christ as the mm. like, as a very clever joke because these stupid knuckle-dragging evangelical Christians. You know, I knew nothing about evangelicalism or Christianity, really, but, but you know, I knew enough to despise the evangelicals. So I, they, they, had, they had this book table in front of the dining hall, and I looked at the books, and they had Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. They had uh, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and I think they had, and they had the Bible, and they were handing them out. And so I said to them, you're giving these books away. And they said, yes. And I said, they're free. They said, yes. And I said, you don't have to sign anything. They said, no. Hmm. So I was like, suckers. And so, because I recognized C.S. Lewis. I'd read C.S. Lewis growing up and read the Chronicle. And my mom had read the Chronicles of Narnia to me. So I recognized the name. Yeah. And so I, I took the two C.S. Lewis books and I was like, I don't want your Bible. And so I ran back to my room and they probably thought, well, that's, you know, $10 wasted. <laughs> that guy really is not here at all. As a child, did you recognize Aslan as a as a type of Christ? I don't think so, not at all. No? I, I think okay. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go 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 ahead. I was just curious about that. Yeah, but I knew that. I mean, I recognized the name, and I think I maybe I did even know that there were some allegories in there. I don't remember, but I'd read the books, so I took the books back to my my dorm room. But I was hooked. So mere Christianity was fine, but. The screw tape letters, I just could not put it down. I probably read that book, I don't want to exaggerate, but pro probably 10 times cover mm. to cover before becoming a Christian. Wow. And because I would read it and I would think to myself, how does he know what's going on in my head? <laughs> like this guy knows what I'm thinking and how I'm thinking. And, and how does he do that? Because I, I get he's a Christian. But he has this profound, spir not spiritual, but insight into how my life works. Yeah. How does he do it? So, so that was just fascinating to me. So I just read it over and over and over again. 
And then, so that was like probably sophomore or junior, senior years. And then around my senior year, I began dating my future wife, Christina. Now she was a Christian mm-hmm. and I always caution people don't do that because of all the problems it will entail. Now, what we intended for evil, God intended for good. So God used it for good in our case, but it's always very tricky and it can go very bad. But we began dating in our senior year. And so I, but I knew she was a Christian and I just figured, like, yeah, well, so I guess once I met her, then I thought, huh, maybe I'm not a Christian because she was different. Because the big thing that stuck out to me about her was that she was actually smarter than me. She was one of the top students. She, she was actually, I think she was uh, in the writing for valedictorian our year. She oh, wow. was the top of our class in organic chemistry. She, so she was really, really, really smart. So I, I couldn't beat her in that. And then she was very pretty. So I couldn't beat her in that. And she sang and she did all these extracurricular activities. But the craziest thing was she did all of these things better than me, but she didn't care about them. She just didn't like pretend. I pretended not to care. I, I really, really pretended to be humble because that was one more thing I could be better at than other people being humble. But she was actually humble. She just didn't compare herself to other people and didn't worry about those things. It didn't bother her and just didn't prey on her mind. So that was fascinating to me. And also she was very pretty and she was very smart and very funny. So I convinced her to start dating me. And I figured we could compromise on this whole Jesus thing. And I also realized, man, I like this girl and it would be very convenient to be a Christian. And I was still, I still believed in God and I was still praying regularly. So I started saying, I tried to pray to Jesus. I was like, okay, Jesus, I'll pray to you. But then I was like, no, I don't believe in, as a God, I don't believe in Jesus. I can't do this. But I was like, so I was very torn. But you, you had, you had a, you had a, you had a dilemma then there. I mean, like what, what, why, why was it that, that you felt, I mean, you, you had kind of, you were familiar with God and with, with, with your mother's Catholicism and these other little stories, these anecdotal stories that you've told. I mean, what, why, why was, why was going to Jesus something that was like, Ooh, that's, that's weird. Do do you, have you ever thought about that or. Not, I mean, he was just a, he was a guy now. I mean, he, he, he was a human being who lived. I didn't think he was God. I know I was supposed to think he's God, but I'm like, well, why should I think he's God? Yeah. Just, just a guy. Right now. And the funny thing is that was senior year. I believe that I took, Oh, you know, maybe that was before that. So I took a class at Princeton. I believe it was my junior year, actually, junior spring. So it would have been before I began dating Christina. So I took a class on the New Testament and Christian origins at Princeton. We used Bart Ehrman's textbook. I have it mm. right on my shelf over here. And uh, the course was taught by my, actually my college, uh, would it, be, it was called the college master back then. I think they changed the name, but the head of my dorm uh, a professor named John Gager, and we had Elaine Pagels. If you know the name, she's a very yeah. prominent scholar. I, yeah, I saw her at Montevallo. She was giving a uh, talk about her. Um, it what was was it the translation of the Gospel of Thomas? Yeah. Um, this was, I think, this was like right on the cusp of me me getting saved. But yeah, okay. she, yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar with her. Yeah. So she's a very prominent scholar of the Gnostic Gospels and mm-hmm. was a former evangelical Christian and now is, I don't know if she's professing Christian still, but definitely not a conservative Christian. 
but she taught she she gave a guest lecture so this is by definitely not a christian course in fact it was known apparently as the faith buster hmm. among evangelical christians at princeton nice so i took this course as a non-christian my junior year and i so we read sections of the bible we read all these textbooks on interpretation and the history of the new testament and how we got the bible and it, it was again all taught from a totally secular sort of jesus seminar perspective i mean gager i think his own personal view was probably similar to airman's or, or frederick's paulo frederickson's i think i'm not sure but we it was not by any means a christian class yeah um so but 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 from that class i learned how to i learned how scholars think about the historicity of the bible and how they decide what is historical and what is not and then i but then also i learned um that jesus was a real human being and i actually i think we learned in that class that there are 12 basic facts about jesus life that that people everybody just affirms like yeah you know, the man named jesus yeah, yeah like the basic ones that and i mean that everyone's like well this is just common sense no one denies it there was a guy yeah. named jesus he was a jew he was born in judea he you know he was a wandering rabbi he had 12 disciples he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors he taught about the kingdom of god uh he was baptized by john the baptist but you know but but the whole outline uh, you know he was crucified under Pilate. Uh, and then the Christians, you know, were fo followed his teachings afterwards. Basic facts about Jesus' outline, the outline of Jesus' life, that in Ehrman's estimation, no sane person doubts. And that's probably true. Like, it's, that's just the consensus among scholars. Yeah. Have you, have you ever read any of Gary Habermas's work or uh, followed him at all? We've, we've interviewed him several times. He's uh, at Liberty University. Um, he, he's very big on the minimal facts. And, um, trades on a lot of those those basic ideas that, that essentially all scholars agree with um have are you familiar with them yeah yeah i've actually met yeah. him a few times yeah okay but, um, yeah good guy yeah he's a good guy so so but that, the bottom line is that i i from that class i learned just historically there's a guy named jesus who basically fits the description of the the, the non-religious parts of the new testament I mean, not the miracles, not the resurrection, but, you know, that's the same guy. And so then going into my senior year, then when I'm trying to figure out, well, then how can I be a Christian or, do, or what would that mean? Well, that's why I'm saying, well, he's just a guy. I can't pray to this guy. I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't exist, but he's not God. This is before and, you met your wife when you took this Well, this class. is after I met. Oh, yeah. I took a class before I met my wife. Yeah. Then after meeting her and beginning to date her and thinking, man, it would be nice to be a Christian right now, be much more convenient. And thinking, I just can't. I'm not gonna. I can't lie to myself and lie to God and pretend I'm gonna pray to this guy who's not God. So that so that was still in the back of my mind. I you know read C.S. Lewis and you know uh, was fascinated by it. But then, so then we decided to go to grad school. We both went to UC Berkeley, and I again I'm, I really was like I really love this girl. I want to marry her. So I will tell you what. I will compromise. We'll, we can work this whole Jesus thing out. I'll start going to church with her in grad school. I'll show her that we're going to meet halfway. And so that was a big mistake because <laughs> the church we went to in Berkeley was sort of a big, I mean, for Berkeley, it was a biggish evangelical church. And our pastor had a PhD from either Oxford or Cambridge. 
And my quantum physics professor sang in the choir. He's a renowned cosmologist. Oh, wow. And he used to wear, it's interesting, he'd tell us, he told us this later, actually, but he, I took, I took my first semester class on quantum mechanics from this professor. And every few weeks, he would wear his first pres Church of Berkeley sweatshirt to class. He wouldn't say anything. He would just wear it. But he told us later in, in like a graduate student fellowship that was very intentional. He just mm -hmm. wanted people to know that he was a Christian. And, you know, he, he didn't ever say anything. He didn't like, you know, lead prayer before class, but he wore his t-shirt, his sweatshirt. Um, anyway, so, but at the church, the bottom line was that the church was populated by like college professors, students, you know, intellectuals, professionals. And that forced me to take Christianity seriously because until mm. then, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, yeah, you know, this whole Jesus being God thing is for the dumb people. It's yeah. for, you know, now, nowadays we'd say it's for the, the red state people. It's not yeah. for me. It's for the, the gun toting, beef jerky eating, you know, <laughs> NASCAR watching, those, those people. Uh, and not, yeah. it's not for an intellectual like myself, right? Yeah. So did you, did you kind of maybe have, have it in the back of your mind that, that eventually your wife would come around to, uh, to a more reasonable position? Yeah, probably actually. I probably figured that like, yeah, you know, I'm sure so I'm meeting her halfway. So now she's meet me halfway. So she'll kind of, and, and unfortunately that's what often happens, right? When you have yeah. couples that are, you know, half Christian, half non-Christian, or you're not the half, but one's Christian, one is not that there is this expectation of compromise, which is why the Bible says don't marry non-Christians. And I would just say, and don't date them seriously either, because what, where's it going to go? <laughs> like, You date people because you're hoping maybe you might marry them. And the, I think the problem is people don't realize you get attached. You know, you begin yeah. to love a person and it's only going to make it harder and harder and harder if you either have to break up with them or you decide to get married to them. And then now you've, violated God's commands and it's going to be a really hard, really hard marriage. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's just better to say, you know, it's not that non-Christians are, are, you know, not human beings or, you know, it's that, no, obviously not. It's not, they're, they, they're not, you know, they have virtue and they can't be loving and no, none of those things, but that you don't share at a fundamental level what's most important in your life or, yeah. or at least it should be most important in your life. And if it, so that, that's going to always be a big source of tension. Uh, anyway, so going to this church, I was forced to say, wait a minute, what if Christianity is actually true? Uh, so I, I, you know, didn't like I suddenly had answers to my questions, but I suddenly had to stop dismissing Christianity as like, oh, come on, how can Jesus be God? That's ridiculous. No one, no one believes that. Oh, no, wait, some people do believe that. And they're actually quite smart people. I'm taking classes on quantum mechanics from one of them. So that was when it really began to get troubling for me because I couldn't keep writing off Christianity and ignoring it. I had to actually wrestle with it. And so it I remember, a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, it was a Presbyterian church, right? And so yes. I, I'm assuming that it's one of the, what do you, do you know what, what denomination it was, it was part of, uh, whether it was, um, like one yeah. of the, uh, PC USA or. Yeah, it was, it was a, Evan, it was a conservative PCUSA church. So it was on the, okay. the PCUSA, and this was 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, there was a much more of a spectrum in the PCUSA, and it would be on the conservative end of the spectrum. Mm. 
Yeah. I'm not sure what they've done since then. They may have left the PCUS or they there's an ECO, which is sort of like a conservative PCUSA branch. I mean, either way, I think now I would not where I am now theologically. I would wa- I would go to I would not go to that church now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but even back, even the way it was 20 years, but this was 20 years ago. And so things were, were different back then. Actually, it was yeah, 20 years ago. Anyway, but, but I definitely, you know, at the church, I heard the gospel, the, you know, the simple gospel, which is that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And uh, so that, but that message began to trouble me because I realized that was the message. And then I realized that if that message were true, then basically Christianity was true. I mean, if the basic message, Jesus came to save sinners and you're a sinner and he rose from the dead to rescue sinners and now you trust in him and he's God's son, he's God incarnate. That's basic Christianity right there. If that's true, well, that has massive implications because then I have to start taking seriously other doctrines. I mean, obviously, that's not the only doctrine in Christianity. So things like, well, okay, what about things like hell? I mean, Jesus saved us from something. So what did he save us from? Well, we have to now wrestle with the idea that God is a not just a loving kind of nice man in the sky who gives you presents. He's also a holy God and a God who expresses anger at sin and is wrathful. So there's idea of hell there suddenly. I didn't have any idea of or I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't. I banished the idea of hell from my God, the God that I had built. Hadn't there's no hell involved. He was just a God of love. So. Yeah. If Christianity is true, suddenly we have to deal with things like hell. We have to deal with things like the exclusivity of Christianity because Jesus is the way to God, not some – there are other ways to God. He's the way to God. So, again, I knew that. I, I, I wasn't trying to – if I'm going to take Christianity seriously, I'm not going to build a new religion and call it Christianity. I'm going to say, well, if Christianity is true, then there are certain things about it that I don't like. But I was. But the point is – before I was comfortable just picking and choosing and saying, well, I'm going to make my own God that I like because yeah, it's all, you know, it's all religion anyway. But now I'm finally confronting the fact that the actual Jesus says things that I don't like. And the actual religion of Christianity has parts of it that I would discard if I could. But again, I was not using that as an excuse to ignore it. Mm. Right. So I really was getting troubled. And then I remember one night, when it kind of all came to a head, I remember actually crying in front of Christina and saying, I don't like this religion. And But the thing is, what's interesting there is that that's an honest reaction to Jesus, right? Yeah. Before yeah, I was kind definitely. of like, yeah, whatever. Jesus is a cool dude. But, but, you know, but this is now, no, 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 wait a minute. He's not a cool dude. <laughs> this is not like just another, what C.S. Lewis calls like, milk and water Christianity. This is not, this is a real thing now. And if it's true objectively, I don't like it. Yeah. Did you have that dilemma in the back of your head uh, from having read Mere Christianity where, you know, C.S. Lewis has that famous diatribe about, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, it's, he's either Lord Lunatic or liar. Um, did Was that? I, I may have, but I think it was more that it was just this. So it, I was getting to the point where... I, I, I think that writing him off as a lunatic or a liar, I just didn't want to do. Right? Yeah. No, one, no one really wants to be like Jesus was like a, you know, a Jonestown cult leader. No one wants to really do that. Yeah. But I wasn't thinking about that. What my dilemma was really was, as it had always been, 
a choice between Jesus being Lord and a different Jesus that I liked better. Yeah. I, that was the dilemma was not, I wanted to have Jesus, but the Jesus I wanted was a different Jesus, not the one in the Bible. And so that probably was, like the Jesus that Airman kind of floats out there. Like he's got, there's gotta be some other kind of Jesus out there. We just don't exactly know what he was like. Well, more like just the hippie Jesus, right? Jesus just yeah. loves everybody and just wants you to be, have a good life and to be nice to each other. Um, but which, I mean, Jesus does want you to be nice and love each other, but he wants much more than that. Absolutely. And the kind of character he wants. Yeah. So, but I wanted that warm and fuzzy Jesus only and not the Jesus that I was actually, you know, seeing in the Bible or even, you know, hearing it. Well, just, I just knew, exa- I, I knew that was not the Jesus as he was believed in Christianity. And so it wasn't a question of me, should I reject Jesus or should I accept him? It was, darn, I want to accept Jesus, but what if he's not the Jesus I want? What am I going to do? And so mm-hmm. I remember telling Christina, I was like, I don't like this. I don't like this religion. I don't like Christianity. What tell You tell me, how can God send good people to hell? How can there be a wrathful God? How can Jesus be the only way? And I remember she just said, and I'm not sure. I don't, I don't have all those answers. Yeah. Hmm. And that, the thing is, I would, I think I would have been ready to argue. I would have been ready to say, well, wait a minute. You, you say, if you give me answers, I would have had counter answers. I would have had objections and questions. But when she just said, well, I don't know. I'm not sure at the time what it did for me, but in retrospect, it made me realize this is a God you don't make up because a God you make up is one for whom you have lots of answers, right? You can explain everything about your religion because your religion is made up. But a real religion has things that rub you the wrong way. A real God, a God that you didn't create, is one that you can't always explain. And so what I was seeing, so I don't know if I grasped that at the time, but when Christina said, I don't... Lewis, like uh, very, very C.S. Lewis, what you just said, right? Yeah, or Tim Keller, right. But and so maybe <laughs> I'm thinking, and maybe I'm interpreting it from that. But at the time, definitely, it did floor me because I was expecting her to have all the answers and to say, well, this is why I believe because of this and this and this. And he's like, it all makes sense. And I was ready to argue with that. But I, what I wasn't ready to argue was basically that, and she didn't do it this way, but this sort of ultimatum, are you going to follow or not? And that was not her saying that, but it was God saying that is, you know, you know enough to know this is plausible and you know enough to know it's not something you like. You're not, it's not wish fulfillment here. Mm. So will you follow? And that night I remember basically saying to God, because again, I was, I would pray, but I said to God, basically, I don't know if Jesus is your son. That's a pretty that's a pretty agnostic, right? Like, I don't even know if Jesus is God, but if he is, I'm willing to follow him. That was, that was the pretty much, well, I don't know how I articulated it. I didn't pray a sinner's prayer. I just said, I don't know, but I am willing to follow. And God drops the mic. That, well, that's, that's, that's the, so interesting. So amazing. Shannon is that, you know, theologically where I am now, I'd be like, no, 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 I did it wrong. <laughs> That's not the gospel. You, you didn't do this and this. You didn't, you didn't understand. But keep in mind here that, the, first of all, the, the heart of the gospel is, is repentance and faith. You're turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus, right? Mm. Well, where, where's the repentance? Where's this deep knowledge of my sinfulness and my need for a Savior? Well, what had been driving me my entire life was this 
wanting to feel better than other people and being proud of my accomplishments, especially being proud of my intellectualism. I was so smart. I had a God that I'd figured out my own. And I'm, that was the most important thing about me. I was smart. I was moral. I was self-righteous. I was a Pharisee. And now God is saying, yeah, of course. And now if I become a Christian, it means admitting that I've gotten God wrong my entire life and the dumbest, you know, stupidest, redneck, Bible-believing, Bible-thumping fundamentalist knows God and I don't. That's what I was tacitly admitting. Mm. And I had to – and so when I said to God, I'll follow follow Jesus, if, if you, I was being willing to turn away from that, which is, again, my, was my idol. My number one idol was – I am a good, smart person, and I had to be willing to say, nope, I don't know anything, and you're going to have to teach me. And going to Jesus and saying, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm here to learn. So in that sense, and okay, again, I, I'm not saying that we should aim for that bare minimum gospel <laughs> presentation. Yeah. I'm just, it's just amazing, though, that what God and his mercy will take, you know, in terms of True. I, I I think that was a step of faith. I think that was me turning to Jesus and saying, I mean, like like his back in the first century Palestine, people were like, well, I don't know who this guy is. I'm going to follow him, though. Yeah. So there was an element of actually turning and following Jesus. Now, and, was yeah. your wife, uh, was were you engaged at this point in time or was this mm-hmm. before that? This is still before you guys that, yeah. still courting. Yeah. So we yeah. So then. But the funny thing is that after that, when that night happened, I remember that like. Her family had all been praying for me, and we got this super awkward message a few days later from her aunt saying, like, oh, I can't believe Neil became a Christian. I've been praying for him forever. And I was like, awkward, because I was still, <laughs> you know, so I was like, I don't know what I just did. But, but, but again, she she clearly noticed something happening, right? That it was not just yeah. like you know, that, that Neil has actually turned. And, and, and it is true that, like, you look at the trajectory of my life afterwards, that the, yeah, I mean, I had a long way to go theologically but um i got involved in the bible study in our in our you know graduate student ministry group at berkeley i started going to church and so and i uh, i got a lot of uh, someone gave me a guy from my bible study gave me a bunch of tim keller sermons which i just started devouring i was like oh my gosh this is incredible and so I grew up just a ton and, you know, was reading the Bible. I got a, Christina gave me a pamper this. So a friend of mine gave me some Tim Keller Sherman CDs and I just devoured them. Uh, I thought they were amazing and I learned a ton, but I had a, a long way to go theologically. And I look back on some of the things that I was feeling and thinking back then. And I was like, wow, I was, I was a very young Christian. So for this happened, I think around August, 2001, I remember that September 11th happened and I remember praying with Christina in our uh, in our driveway, which I would not have done if I were was not a Christian. And uh, and then I remember that for my birthday, which is September twelfth, she bought me a Bible, and I was like, ah, okay, mm-hmm. thank you. I, I was like, you know, I was just like, I was not at all ex- wanting a Bible for my birthday, but she got, but but that shows you that I was still very just like, okay, whatever. But then, of course, then I read the Bible, you know. A lot in the next several years. Uh, I remember going to my first Bible study group in you know first few months of grad school. And I remember going to this guy's apartment, and I get to the door and I kind of walk in, 
and I immediately start sizing up the guys in the Bible, say like, which one of these guys is cool, which is not cool. Which hmm. again, you're like, that's not the kind of thing, the way that Christians normally think about other Christians. But Oh, <laughs> it probably is. It probably well, okay. is. That's, that's the way men go into Bible study thinking who, they, they start sizing everybody up. Like, who yeah. am I going to, who am I going to have the Armenian versus Calvinist fight with here? Sure. Uh, well, at least, uh, so, it, but it's certainly it's not the way that I go in to Bible studies today. So it's just put it that way that I, I was still thinking in terms of, in very different ways than I, than I, than I am now. But the point is that I, Clearly, that you know, a corner had been turned. Yeah. That, that you know, something had happened where my life had changed dramatically. Um, so that's sort of the story of how I I came to faith. And like I said, there's. It should be both. You look at the things that brought me to that point. There are all kinds of turning points along the way, or, or step, you know, paths, steps along the path that were significant, like getting a book, a C.S. Lewis book, you know, sophomore year. Or meeting, you know, hearing that Jesus Christians are one with Christ when I was eight. <laughs> yeah. And and so I always tell people actually when I was at Yale, I helped to run a book table that handed out copies of Tim Keller's the book The Reason for God mm. to Yale students. And I remember telling the other students that volunteered with me about my own story and saying, even if someone just grabs the book and walks away and you never see them again, don't feel like that was a waste. Because you never know what God will do with that act of obedience. Same thing. I gave away a bunch of Bibles at Berkeley, and the the copy of the Bibles that I had actually had a, uh, Isaiah fifty five eighteen. I want to say on the front cover, but it or in the in the inside, and it, the verse was you know uh, like the something like, like the rains from the heaven. So will the the word from my now mouth will not return void to me, but mm-hmm. will accomplish what I have to fulfill it for it to fulfill, and. It, when I handed out those Bibles, I remember thinking, that's perfect verse, right? Because I, all I'm here to do is give, you know, is sow the seed, right? And God's going to use it. And I don't have to worry about, did I say the right things? Did I do the right things? I am just here to give you a Bible. And I will trust that God can use that to do, I mean, obviously you don't want to not <laughs> talk about Christianity. But but the point is, that's if all you're doing is just handing out books, even God can even use that. Yeah. Yeah. I've done street preaching where a lot of times you just end up handing people a Bible track. And I've known plenty of Christians who kind of just are down on that idea. They're like, well, you're just, you just, it just it doesn't, it's not effective, man. You're not really, you're not really reaching out to people and you're just showing people how, what a, what a, what a jerk you are or something. I don't know what their reasons are, but I, I've always had that mindset, you know, that, I mean, even if it's, Maybe even if it's just a chick track, I don't know if you know who Jack Chick is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, some of those can be kind of crude. Uh, but you know, even if it's, even if it's just a very basic track, you know, that has just a few scripture verses in it, you know, God, God can do all kinds of things with that. Um, so did you, during this time, did you have a large group of friends that you kind of had to separate yourself from? Was there any kind of thing like that or were you already kind of kind of lockstep with with your future wife like you that was the main relationship that you had outside of your your school work and things like that i imagine you were pretty studious right so you weren't going out to a lot of parties and stuff like that probably right 
Yeah, and because we just moved to a grad school, right? So we 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 left, you know, all of our college friends, you know, they all they all dispersed, and so we we had a brand new community, and that was the Christian community in Berkeley. So yeah. it was not like this sudden break with all of our friends. Be and I don't even even now I've not broken with my college friends, but it wasn't this constant tension between. Gosh, I can't go out. And I wasn't obviously like I said when I was not a Christian. I still wasn't going out. And getting hammered every weekend that was just not what i did yeah. so there was not like this huge need for um a different social environment uh mm. because again it was i we, we we got plugged in immediately to a christian community right away yeah well was there was there a particular time like so you've you've started praying with your wife obviously 9 11 would have been pretty traumatic um kind of a traumatic point in anybody's life where they had to do some moral reckoning with with what the future might hold and how how you were going to deal with that but was there moving forward with 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 your testimony was there was there a time where you know you really where where christ really captured your heart or where the holy spirit like you you were what what francis schaefer might call a a power encounter um or was there, was there ever anything like that? I'm not saying that there has to be at all. Um, but I'm just wondering, you know, like, like, you know, you're, you're slowly being convinced and does that just, does that, does that just kind of slowly keep moving forward for you or? Yeah. I mean, I think one other significant turning point was that after, you know, after I, uh, had that night where I said, you know, I'll follow you Jesus. And then I was going to church with Christina, but I remember, very soon afterwards, they had uh, they had communion at our church. And it was a Presbyterian church, but one of the things they said was, which I think, and this is, <laughs> I know I'm a, I'm a Southern Baptist, but one of the things that I disagree with in the BFM is that they practice uh, well, it's it's closed communion, but in the sense that you have to be baptized by immersion to take communion. So these were this was a Presbyterian church, so they did not do that and one of the but what they did say they did they didn't practice closed communion because when they said they said uh this table is for people who follow jesus and do not take the communion if you do not follow jesus but if you do take if you following jesus you're welcome to come up and take communion mm. and i i'm pretty sure that the first time they had communion at the church they did it once a month that i did not go up because i was like i'm not a christian but the second time they had communion at our church was after that night and I was really nervous. I get, I'm very, I do not like public displays of anything. When we first went to church and they were singing out loud, I started sweating. I do not like public singing, public anything. I hate, it makes me very uncomfortable. That's funny. So I was, when they took communion that day, I remember sitting and getting so nervous. And I was like, I don't, I was like, I, I was like, I want, I want to take it. And I, I think I'm allowed to take it. So I, and it was, I wasn't, it wasn't like a, you know, really traumatic, but I remember thinking to myself, no, I'm following Jesus. I need to take communion. And so that was another big, and I remember Christina saw me and was like, what? So, but she realized that this was a big thing for me to, to get up there and say, yes, I'm following Jesus now. I'm taking communion. And then after that, I forget exactly when, but soon after that, I was baptized at that church. Yeah. So how old were you when you got baptized? I would have been 21. About 21. 21, yeah. Um, mm. 
but it was, I'm not sure what month it was, but I remember, I remember I took communion first, which again, depending on your church polity, you, you're not supposed to do. But again, I think, again, there are probably some theological debates and ecclesiological debates going on. But I think that the, the, the point psychologically was that when I did that, it was because I was overtly confessing, I am trusting in Jesus as Lord. I am following him. And therefore this table is for me. Mm. Um, which again, that was a pretty major confession <laughs> um, uh, on my part. So, yeah. Was there a sense of relief whenever you took that step? Or did you know, did you, did you have this sense that, you know, well, this is it, I, no turning back now, anything no, like I, that? Yeah, I don't think so. I think, again, I think the big step for me was that, that first night where I had to give up. Well, then there's another, one other interesting, I forget when this happened exactly, but I remember that after, and I'm not sure the order this happened in, but after becoming a Christian, I wrestled with whether, well, do I have to rethink graduate school? this come up several times. So do, how do I know that I'm supposed to go to graduate school? Maybe I should just go and serve the poor or I don't know, do something, be a missionary. And because so much of my life had been about being the best and being better than other people and being smart, graduate school was a natural option, getting a PhD. My goal was to become a professor at the top of my profession. And when I became a Christian, I realized, oh my gosh, Jesus is in control now. What if he wants, what if he's commanding me to do something else? I just got into grad school. It's like our, it's definitely the first few months of grad school, but should I quit? And, and if he asked me to quit, am I going to do it or not? And so I had to really come, I was like, I mean, I mean, God, are you asking me to quit? And I, I was like, I don't know. But if he does ask me to quit, I have to, would I be mm -hmm. willing to? And I really struggled with that. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I say yes, what if he makes me quit? I don't want to quit. This is my whole life. I got, I've always wanted to be a professor. This is why I was really, really upset. But then I remember I was in the shower and I was finally, I was like, I was wrestling with this and I was like, you know what? I'll follow you, Jesus. I, you know, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do because I trust you. And then he was like, stay in grad school. I mean, not audibly, but I was, yeah. I just thought, was like, no, actually, no. I had this really sense of peace, like stay in grad school. I was like, oh, okay. But, but again, that was a huge, for me, I was literally like, really upset because this had been my whole life and my all my plan for a long time so to, to say okay i i can't i can't be my own savior i can't be my own lord anymore i'm not i have to do what jesus says to give him that control was another again turning point i think there are those i don't know that there are any times when i you know had what people would call the second blessing you know or you know just this traumatic this you know tremendously charismatic experience uh no i don't think so but there there mm -hmm. have been moments like those where you see these you know moment you know i would theologically i would say moments of say the in the uh, what, what is what does grudem call it like the the end not the end of the spirit but like the um there's a, there's a word he uses for it but experiencing the fullness of the spirit right yeah. where you where you're suddenly aware of your adoption your 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 sense god's presence Again, mm. I, I think theologically, I would not call that a second blessing. Or I would just say that you're experiencing what the apostles themselves experienced, which is that they they were not they did not receive the Spirit anew; they experienced the Spirit anew in mm. deeper ways. So, they, yeah, yeah there there you're always going to have times like that where you feel like you've turned a corner. Um, 
and then again, I think the other, but the other big caution I have there is that I, I think we should always avoid sort of triumphalism. Because when I say I've, you turn a corner, yeah, and then you fall back down a few flights of stairs. So, yeah. so while there is there is true progress in the Christian life, uh, you're always returning to the gospel, which is just that you're a miserable sinner and yeah. you need a savior. And so I I, I always caution people um, that it's yeah absolutely you know, obey, trust, pray, but but. I think it was was it Luther's wife Katie, who says something like I'm I'm sticking to Jesus like a bird or a cloak. It's mm. simple peasant language of but but that's it. That's that's the essence of the Christian life is just yeah. clinging to Jesus. It's not how good you are, how how holy you are, how sanctified you are. It's it's that you're justified, yeah. and it's never never letting go of that fact. Yeah, I, I like to tell people, remind people to do what Paul did, and he said, he said, I keep my my eye on the high, on the goal, on you know, finish the race, to finish it well. And for us to do that, we have to keep we have to keep Jesus front and center. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, and we have to keep running towards towards Him, towards His arms, towards maybe even his moral standards, um, you know, everything we want, we want to emulate him as much as we possibly can. And, um, you know, were you baptized when you were eight years old, like I was, but you're living like hell now, you know, well, you got it, whatever, wherever you are, turn back towards Christ and start running towards him. You know, um, that's, that's the main thing. Um, so at what point in time did you get into apologetics, right? So like when you guys, you and you and your wife finally get married, she's convinced that it's safe to, uh, to get married to you. Uh, you're not, you're not nominal anymore. You're very much a, a believer in, uh, in Jesus Christ. Now you've been baptized where, 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 what's, what's, um, so from there you, you go on to get your PhD, right? And, uh, so what, so now, now that you're saved and I honestly thought that I was going to hear a little bit of like a, uh, a, uh, Francis Collins kind of, you know, like the, the evidence convinced me that, that God yeah. exists because I was looking at, at the, the, all of these things and there's no way that it could happen by random mutation and, you know, just, just by, you know, just chance happenings. Um, so that that's I kind of it's it's kind of refreshing to me to hear you say that that you you were essentially a uh, kind of a, a a a deist essentially yeah. of your own of your own making and then slowly God kept hemming you in um, that's that's kind of a beautiful that's very much a beautiful thing um, so what what happens what happens now like whenever you get whenever whenever you get married, is it, why, why apologetics? Like, I mean, uh, this is, this is obviously a pretty strong area of your life now, right? Um, yeah, definitely. Do a lot of writing on it. So. Yeah. So when I was at Berkeley, I got through our graduate Christian fellowship, I met some other Christians who were, who were interested in apologetics and were trying to, uh, 
in dialogue with the atheist group on Berkeley's campus. But I think mm. their I think their name was Sane, Students for a Non-Religious Ethos. And I may be wrong about that nickname. That might have been the Yale's atheist group. Not a but bad anyway, acronym. Actually, no, I think it, I think that was Berkeley. I think it was Sane was at Berkeley. Anyway, uh, so I got to know those Christians and the atheist group and began talking to them. And I remember, and I, I think I'd probably read, I'd read Mere Christianity. I think I'd read, uh, I think I'd read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, maybe in grad school. So it's a, it's a good book, but it's very introductory on the, you know, evidence for the historicity of the Gospels and their reliability. And, but not, but not very much. I was not very interested in apologetics. And then when I met these atheists kind of hung out with them. I remember going to and having coffee with the president of the atheist group. Mm. And we were talking and he said, you know, I could believe in God, but I would just need, you know, just one clear miracle that happened. And then I could believe that a God existed. But otherwise, you know, I just can't believe in it. Not even a miracle that, that, that he would see himself just just something that just mir- something. even a historical yeah. miracle even a historical one just some clear unequivocal case of a miracle and i said okay wait a minute so you want you know, by a miracle you mean like all the laws of physics just breaking down and you know and th- that we can't explain it you know that that, that kind of miracle is like yeah, yeah yeah so i said well, wait a minute here now and, and i've keep in mind i have no apologetics background at all but i said now wait a minute what about what about the Big Bang, right? That's like the universe began, and we have no idea what caused it or why it happened. Or all, and literally, I've always heard it described as the laws of physics all breaking down. Yeah, that's what it's called. That's what when it's described as a singularity. So, wouldn't that count? And he sort of looks at me and he goes, and he thinks, he says, "Huh." <laughs> <laughs> And, and so then I was like, wait a minute. I was kind of looking around. I'm like, is it this easy? I don't get it. Like, because it's not <laughs> like I had some master plan. I was just kind of off the cuff spitballing. I'm like, what about the Big Bang? And he's like, oh. So then I thought to myself, this is maybe people just need better reasons. Maybe people yeah. aren't asking the right questions. And so maybe he was actually kind of a nice guy, though, too. I mean, he sounds like he was kind of open. Yeah, I mean, he was. But, but the main thing was just, it, it, it seemed like he'd never heard that before he never even considered that possibility so i began thinking gosh maybe i should use my degree to go into academia and then make a case that god exists that christianity is true to people like this who have never heard these kind of arguments and even they even asked the right questions so and again keep in mind this guy's the president of the atheist society and so if he's kind of floored by this you said well what about hmm. the average guy just walking down the street so that you would was think that would be pretty basic right? yeah i know right yeah and so uh, yeah but it whatever reason that, that kind of just at least puzzled him so that was maybe when william I, lane yeah. craig wasn't as popular back then no i mean i guess he would have I actually <laughs> i think I, I think i actually saw craig speak at princeton i don't oh, i wow. wouldn't i didn't recognize him but I, I remember a speaker coming and giving the kind of talk that Craig would have given. So I think it was him, but I don't know. Anyway, um, so that was when I began thinking about apologetics, but then it really started when I graduated and moved to Yale 
and we moved to Yale for my wife's MD. And I got an email from a high school friend of mine who said, are you still religious? Because, and people knew that I was a Christian at that point. And the high school friend said, if you're still religious, I have a friend of mine who can talk you out of all that nonsense. Mm. And he actually a very smart guy. He went to Yale. So you guys should go, you should go to his blog and you guys should, should argue about religion. So I said, sure. So I go to this guy's blog and we start talking about Christianity. And the funny thing is that he was completely unprepared and I was completely unprepared. We had no idea what we were doing, but, mm. and so we, so we started talking about religion and God and I, you know, I'm trying to explain how Christianity is true, but don't really know how to do it. And I'm not completely incompetent, but I'm not doing apologetics yet. And so he he says, well, why don't you read this book that will convince you that Christianity is all a lie? And so he gives me his book, and the book is Robert Price's The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man. Mm. Now, Price is maybe the only, the only credentialed PhD scholar with a relevant PhD who believes that Jesus is a myth. Like in the, oh. he's the only credential scholar with a, with a, you know, with a PhD, maybe in Richard Carrier, I guess Richard Carrier would have a PhD too. But a it's not, field. it's not in a relevant field though. Is, it's, isn't right? it classics or history or something? I, I don't know. It's, it's close enough. I mean, whatever I'll, I'll give you, it's not like, a, it's not like science. So, but, but, but uh, carriers doesn't have a, I think, I think price is actually like a, a scholar and an academic of some kind. Anyway, whatever. They're very few. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I read. So I'm reading this book now, and the funny thing is, this guy, you know, this is the book that's supposedly going to talk me out of being a Christian. And I remember sitting on the bed and just reading passages out loud to Christina, and we're just giggling, like just laughing until we cry, because the book was so insane. It was. There's one part where he talks about how Samson is really a personification of the sun. Because Samson has seven locks of hair, like the seven rays of the sun, and Samson's hair was probably red, like the reddest of the sun, and and Samson's name it, it just went on and on. It was just like it was it was like this a raving of a conspiracy theorist. You know what's funny though is that he sounds like he's reading the reading those 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 ancient stories in the same way that I hear a lot of Christians trying to. Uh, kind of interpret and uh and kind of create but like draw all of these analogies out of the text that aren't necessarily there right like i've i've heard more than one pastor preach from a particular text and like like my wife would turn to me and she's like is that what it's saying i don't think so you know and but it's just like you, you know we 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 we, we, we create all of these analogies because we're trying to kind of, you know, figure, you know, make it relatable in some way, form, or guess, fashion. Yeah. And it ends up being very, very anachronistic. It is, it was, it, this was beyond anachronistic. This was just weird. <laughs> like, this was like just free association on yeah. some story. And anyway, so I read that book and I was just like, this is not a very convincing book but that was the start and this and that was the sort of me saying hey look i need to start reading these eight first of all i was like that that book is if that you if you think that book is convincing and again remember i've taken i've taken a class at princeton on the new testament from 
more mainstream scholars who are not Christian. And they're not saying this stuff. This stuff sounds wacko to them too. So the fact that there are people who can find this kind of material convincing tells me that there's a lot of, I don't want to say ignorance, but there's a lot of just plain old reading that should be, that needs to be done. And that we need to be able to present reasons why this, I mean, man, like if I were to be an atheist, I could give you a better way to be an atheist than by reading Robert Price, frankly, like I could. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, I've never been a a presuppositionalist um, in any way, form or fashion, but, and I was actually more opposed to that, that, kind of apologetic framework whenever i was a young man um early on in in my in my apologetic days but i'm i'm warming up to the idea that that these that these false idea like that the idea that that if you do that you if you actively reject the idea of god or christ you you basically create this false framework where essentially you can kind of believe whatever you want and you're just kind of just itching for confirmation bias um there's there's a certain amount of the presuppositionalist i i ideals that that i i have a hard time thinking that there's not some truth to it okay so we're we're about at an hour now um is there uh so to wrap it up real quick why are uh, bringing bringing it back home to where you are now? What what is it that um that has driven you into the uh, the the framework that that uh, are arguing about critical race and critical theory now? Because you've been you've been writing about this for quite some time, mm. and uh, so and which which was it's it's not necessarily a common area of specialization that I've seen any other apologetic person specializing in, but suddenly we are finding that it knowing about these ideas are is more relevant than knowing about the, uh, the, the new atheism of 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's like a blip on the radar now, right. Compared to what's going on now. So what, 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 what led you to that? Not, not wanting to get into, you know, uh, too, too long of a, of a detailed, but just wrapping it up. Yeah. So I, I did get through my time at Yale and talking to this guy on his blog, I did get interested in apologetics, but sort of standard apologetics, so standard things like, how do you know God exists? How do you know the Bible's reliable? How do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Things like that. All the standard books that I, people read and so actually, I, I've written a book on apologetics, which isn't published yet, but just, again, standard stuff, nothing really groundbreaking, maybe a few arguments that are kind of interesting and maybe new. But um, but that was what I was doing for a long time. For you know, I, I think I started writing the book in 2012 and finished in 2017. Yeah. And so so that's what I was doing. And then I, when I finished, I was kind of like looking around for like, what should I study next? And so... Um, that was around around 2015 or 16 or so is around when uh, Black Lives Matter was created and sort of took off. And then also simultaneously, you had the rise or later than that, but you had the rise of Jordan Peterson and the intellectual dark web. Mm. And so those phenomena 
coincided with me meeting my friend Pat Sawyer, who was, was getting his PhD in cultural studies and communication, which is related to critical theory. And so that was sort of a perfect storm in terms of us getting connected and me trying to figure out what was happening in our culture relative to so the social justice movement. And I'm, you know, if you follow, well, if you, yeah, if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook or you just know me, I, I'm very apolitical. I don't post stuff from MSNBC or Fox News or The Blaze or, you know, Vox or whatever, pick your, I just don't. Yeah. I, I just am not into that stuff. I, I have political beliefs. I, I think that they're right. I mean, everyone thinks their beliefs are right, but I just don't make it a big part of what I do. I'm more concerned about apologetics and theology, but this but area. Then again, as you as you find yourself arguing these, arguing against some of the main points, it seems like it's impossible not to be political about about these so, things. I, to some extent, but I find that when I frame every, I very intentionally frame all these discussions in terms of theology and not politics. That's good. And so, because I think that there are ways to be radically uh, politically liberal, not, not meaning issues, not issues of sexuality, say, but issues of like, I don't know, healthcare or uh, the free the extent of the free market or whatever you pick but pick some sort of issues of just sort of what we would call prudence right or wisdom like how do you best run a country right mm -hmm. these are issues i think they're they're right answers i i think there are but i don't think the bible tells you a lot about what the best democracy looks like because the bible doesn't talk about democracy so yeah. there, there is a there's more room for christians to disagree on like well you know how much should minimum wage be right so the point I make is, well, I don't make this point, but the way I think about it is, I think there's a right way to think about healthcare and minimum wage and whatever else you want to think about. But those, that, that kind of wisdom, that practical wisdom is going to be downstream from our theology. And I want to argue that there are a lot of, you can believe that we should have a $30 an hour minimum wage, right? Yeah. Yet be completely theologically conservative and uh, and reject critical theory wholesale. So in other words, those ideas that we're seeing in our culture, which are so dangerous, do do not necessarily, uh, well, sorry, you, you don't, to, if you want to have a $30 minimum wage, you do not need to appeal to critical theory to get there, right? Yeah. I think it's a bad idea, let me just say. <laughs> you but there's points of contact within yeah, all yeah. of these these ideas. Yeah, but I just my, my point I make is that I think when I, if you say to someone, I'm going to explain to you why you need to get rid of. So I'm going to explain to you why a thirty dollar minimum wage is Marxist and evil and will destroy the United States. Okay, and they'll get very they'll get very tense and threatened because people hold their political commitments very tightly. Yeah, what I want to say is. Look, I don't care if you want a $30 minimum wage. It's a bad idea. I can tell you why. But look, that's not what I'm, you know, a person who wants a $30 minimum wage is not, you know, is not a non-Christian. <laughs> that's not a theological issue. A person who thinks that, you know, the Bible is a, an oppressive hegemonic discourse, which we have to deconstruct, that's a problem. Yeah. That's an, that's an idea coming from critical theory. So I want to separate out 
these ideas about politics, which are not, they're not unimportant, but they should be distinct from basic theological ideas like God is not oppressing you. God is not an oppressor. We shouldn't view everything through the lens of power. Those statements are sort of more fundamental to the Christian worldview. The other statements about how we ought to run our country politically and economically, they are downstream from Christianity, but they're not primary. Right. So yeah. I, I just want to, I really want to emphasize to people that I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I am, but I am here to tell you what the Bible says about these ideas. So mm. that's what I want to focus on. Yeah. It's kind of like a, kind of a merely political kind of uh, <laughs> approach to it. Right. It's like, well, you know, take it or leave it, but these are the essential things that, that we need to discuss as they relate to our theology. Yeah. And I think that's very wise. I think that's, that's, that's very smart. Um, think that's wisdom from from the book of proverbs speaking right there and it's uh I, I think there's a lot of valuable lessons just in that that last little little bit of advice that you give us right there um we're we're running well over an hour i think i'm not sure exactly how long we we are but um as as we wrap this up neil um i don't know is there anything that that you would like to say uh concerning your faith you know, like if you're going to stick your, stick your flag in the ground about anything right, right here on the end of, end of this, this podcast specifically about what you believe and how you, how you came to become a a Christian, what, what would that be? One thing that I think I'll say two things, one, both quickly. One is that when I talk to Christians who are sort of doubting their faith, the printer's going, um, when I talk to Christians who are experiencing doubt, which you know, I think happens from time to time with lots of people. Everybody goes through that pretty much. Um, one thing that's helped me is to think about uh, why we why we want to know truth. So people come to me and they say, "Well, how do I know Christianity is true? How do I know it's not just a wish fulfillment?" And I say to them, "Why do you care about knowing truth?" Like you say, "Well, how do I know the atheist? What if atheism is true?" I say, "Why do you care?" They say, well, I want to know what's true. I don't want to believe lies. And you'd say, well, why not? What if, the, what if the lies make you happy? They say, how dare you? I don't want to believe lies that make me happy. I want to seek the truth. I, I feel like it's, I say, no, just, just do what makes you happy. They say, no, no, I, I'm telling you, I, I, I have a moral obligation to seek the truth. I say, there you go. There you go. You, you're telling me that you, you feel deep in your soul that you really just have to seek the truth. When you're terrified in case Christianity is not true, you want to seek the truth. And when I say to you, just believe what makes you happy, you get really upset and offended and say, no, I can't do that. That would be wrong. It'd be wrong. Hmm. Wait a minute now. If atheism is true, if God does not exist, why are you obligated? Why ought you to seek the truth? That's a moral statement. I, it's imperative. I must. I should. It's wrong to. It's, it's right to seek the truth. It's wrong to hide from the truth. Where does that ought come from? And now you get into the moral argument. But what's more than that, it's not just that if morality exists, then God must exist. But it's more than that. A certain kind of God must exist because it's you're saying, I have to seek the truth. So the kind of God who must exist, if that's true, is a kind of God who commands you to seek the truth. And not every God does that. Like if, mm. if God is this guy in the sky, like a deistic God, like you created the universe, doesn't really care about you. Well, that kind of God doesn't care if you seek the truth, right? That's just your, that's your thing. But only if there is a God of a certain type, 
a truth-loving God, a God who is the way, the truth, and the life, then you're obligated to seek the truth. Otherwise, do what you feel like. So the very fact that you are troubled and desirous of the truth is showing you that, yes, indeed, a truth-loving God exists and has implanted that desire in your heart, like all other moral uh, intuitions, that there's a right and wrong, truth is good, hiding from the truth is bad, murder is bad, love is good, but all it's a, it's a twist on the moral argument. So mm. I just say, when a, Christians come, uh, they say, Chike Chesterton said, um, when I go through, I think he said, when I go through, when, when things look really grim and dark and miserable, people say, you should flee from God. And I say, in God's name to what? Right? If you, you want to flee from God when things get hard, but what are you going to flee to? If you're worried about God not being true, and you're going to flee to what? To God not existing? Well, why would you flee away from the very person who's pointing you towards the truth? So the bottom line is I always tell people to think about that very yearning for truth. It's appointing you to a God who loves truth and commands you to seek it. So I could. So what I would say is, now you could come to me and say, well, how do I know that Christianity is true? Maybe some other truth-loving God exists. Maybe Islam is true and God, the God of Islam exists and he commands me to seek the truth. I'm saying, mm. well, that's possible. But you can't say that some other random God who doesn't care about morality or truth-seeking, that God can't exist because if he does exi he exists, then there would not be an obligation for you to seek the truth. Anyway, so that's one thing. The other thing that I would say is that um, for all Christians, the uh, I have a talk called The Gospel as Apologetic where I talk about how the gospel itself, the simple gospel that you find in a chick tract, just the, God, the idea that you're a sinner, you need a rescuer, and that Jesus is a rescuer. That gospel is not only uh, true, but it is evidence that Christianity is true. And in fact, I would argue it's the best evidence out there that Christianity is true. And that's a shocking claim because you're like, what about the Kalam cosmological argument? What about the moral argument? What about the resurrection? What about these other pieces of evidence that show that Christianity is true? And I say, no, all of that is not as good as the gospel itself. Why? I, in my book, I talk about how every religion basically gives you a problem and a solution. So your problem on Buddhism is that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're believing illusions, you're not enlightened, and the solution is enlightenment. The problem is suffering, you need to be enlightened. Uh, the problem in Islam is that you're proud, you don't submit to God, and the solution is submit to God. That, you know, you're disobeying God, you should obey God. So every religion, and I go through a book called uh, God is Not One by a guy named, uh, I'm blanking, um, it's a professor at Boston University, uh, oh, Prothero, Stephen Prothero. But he's not a Christian, and he says, here are the ways that every religion breaks down the problem of humanity and the solution. And he writes, non-Christian, professor of religion, he writes that Christianity is the only religion that says the problem is that you're a sinner, and the solution is not self-improvement, the solution is not enlightenment, the solution is not obedience, the solution is rescue. So that's mm. his word, not mine. It's a long talk about that in his book. So here's the thing. There's only one religion out there that says that your problem is sin, the solution is rescue. That's Christianity. So what do you do if you know that you're a sinner and that you need a rescuer? Either Christianity alone of all religions got that deep fundamental problem right, uniquely, accidentally, coincidentally, 
or it got that deep problem right because it's true. It had it, it reason it, it 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 the reason it's the only religion that says those things about you is that it has insight into your condition because it's from God. And so I go through this in the book and explain again. I formalize that more carefully. But the point is, this is why a you know simple uh, you know uneducated Christian who picks up a chick tract on the bus and reads it and becomes a Christian, and you grab her and you say, why are you a Christian? You know, what argument convinced you? What evidence do you have? And she's like, I don't know, I read this tract. And you're like, oh my gosh, you you don't you don't know it's true. How can you know it's true? Your, your belief is not knowledge. It's not justified true belief. It's not knowledge. You're just guessing. And I'm saying, no, she's not guessing. Because what does she actually know? She said, well, if you ask her why are you a Christian, she would say, well, I read this tract. The track says, I'm a sinner. And boy, was it right. I can just tell you, I just know about my own life, my own heart. I do all these bad things. My, my relationships are messed up. I messed up the thoughts I have, the things I do in secret, you don't know. I just know firsthand in my experience, I'm exactly what this track says I am. I'm a sinner. And then number two, it says I need a rescuer. It says I, I can't earn, I can't fix myself. I can't earn you know, rescue. I can't do anything to make myself better. I've tried. I've gone to seminars. I've read self-help books. I've gone to therapy and I'm still messed up still. And it's telling me, of course you are because you can't save yourself. And so, and here's the thing. So it's telling me I'm a sitter. That's true. It's telling me I can't fix myself. I know that's true too. It's personally, experientially, but here's the weird thing. I've never heard anyone else tell me these two truths. I, you know, I, I've, ex I've, ex experimented with Buddhism, I've read books of Hinduism, and I've gone to a mosque one time, and no one ever told me, you're a sinner who needs a savior. Why have I never heard that message before? And the answer is, because it's unique. There is no other religion teaching that message. And so she is justified in saying, Christianity must be true, because it alone has this unique insight into my spiritual condition. And I and know that's true, just based on my internal experiential awareness of myself. So that's the bottom line. The heart of the gospel is you're a sinner who needs a savior and Jesus himself comes to you and says, I can fix you. So that's the heart of the gospel. And that's what I would say is always why I tell Christians to go back to when they're doubting their faith or even when, uh, when they're just looking for like, well, why do I believe this? Because you know yourself and Christianity is the only solution that you know is workable. Wow. That's good. That is a great place to wrap it up. And uh, with that, we thank you very much for your time. And um, we're, we're glad that you're on our side, Neil. Um, we're glad that, that God has saved you and that, uh, that, that, we get to, that we get to have these conversations with you. Hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Yep. Thanks, Shannon. Yep.